So let me start by posing a question. If God is all-powerful, i.e. in control of world events and works out his purposes, then why do events in the world appear to say that he's absent, that God has gone missing? So, for example, last year, millions have died from uh, COVID-19. There's the increasing persecution of Christians throughout the world, especially in the Middle East, and there's a diminution of Christian freedom in our own country. Uh, Some have even questioned whether the church will survive in developed worlds like Australia. Who would have thought? Or it might be the personal events in your life have caused you to question what you know about God. If God is all-powerful and cares for us, then where is he? Why doesn't he act in a more tangible way that is more meaningful to you, that you can see? Well, the book of Esther is for a time like ours because it delves into this very question of what does God's providential care look like when everything in the world screams that he's not in control and that he doesn't care for us. But in answering this question, I need to give you some important context to the book of Esther. Uh, So Esther is an historical book in the Old Testament. Uh, It's named after a Hebrew girl, Esther, and in the context of this exile. And by exile, I mean when the Israelites were punished by God for their disobedience, and they were forcibly deported from their homeland of Israel and Jerusalem. And they come under the control of another nation. And so what's left of Israel is taken into captivity by the great Babylonian Empire in 587 BC. Uh, The Babylonians ruled an expanse from the Mediterranean Sea in an arc down to the Persian Gulf. But empires come and go, and so the Persians were overthrown, overthrew the Babylonians. And the Persians allow some of the Jews in exile to return home to Jerusalem. And that's what we learnt in Nehemiah last year, wasn't it? It was about those Jews who returned home to Jerusalem. But not all did, and some Jews remained in Persia, which is sort of top of northern Iraq and northern Iran. And so we come to the time of Esther, about 486 BC, 100 years later when the Babylonians overthrew the, uh, the, the Israelites, when King Xerxes, mentioned in chapter 1, ruled. Now, I do this setting deliberately because to the Jews exiled in Persia, I wonder whether they must have thought, God has forgotten us. Because everything they held dear that represented their covenant relationship with God, that is, that special bond that they alone had with God, had been destroyed. And even when the Jews, like Nehemiah, returned to Jerusalem, they wept because they knew they could never restore the temple and even the walls of Jerusalem to their former glory. It would never be the same. Another important context to Esther, as uh, Ingrid mentioned, is that unlike other books in the Bible, it doesn't mention the word God. Indeed, uh, Martin Luther, the um, father of the Reformation, didn't like Esther for this reason. And also has certain tensions and ambiguities that other books like Daniel and Nehemiah of roughly the same period don't have. Indeed, I struggled with Esther. And I said to a few this week, what was I thinking when I approached Ryan and John? And I was talking to a godly woman in our church. I'm a fairly slow male. Uh, and I said, um, I think I've made a big mistake. I wish I'd chosen Daniel because, you know, Daniel's full of this 
triumphant and miraculous story, Daniel being saved from lion's den and fiery caverns. It's just magnificent. And this godly lady pointed out to me that Daniel may be triumphant and miraculous, but Esther is relatable. Why did she say that statement? Why is it relatable? Because we live in an age that is not, not unlike the time of Esther in the exile, where God is sensitive and hated. We live in an age of ambiguity and tension where uh, God reigns, that's what the Bible tells us, but in many ways we don't seem to see that in the world. You see, I think the seeming absence of the word God in Esther is actually why it's in the Bible. You see, I think it's for a time like ours. So with that long but necessary introduction, let's turn to Esther 1. Uh, And we're going to examine Esther 1 and 2 under three headings. That's in your outline. Firstly, the great empire, the great organiser, and finally, the great influencer. So let's go to the first heading, the great empire, and I'll just recap by reading verses 1 to 4 together. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. At that time, the king Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet full of nobles and officials, The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed his vast wealth of the kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty. So we're told of the great empire of King Xerxes. Xerxes was his Greek name. Ashuerus is his Persian name, which are in some Bible versions. He is the ruler of a massive Persian empire that far exceeds what the Babylonians did it. It extends, we're told, from India to Ethiopia. Uh, He holds a lavish party in verse 3, initially for his court and dignitaries, and afterwards for the whole inhabitants of Susa, from the poor to the wealthy. Now, the description of the palace is meant to leave us in awe of this man and his might. For we read in verse 6 that the garden had hangings of white and blue linen held by silver rings on marble pillars. Would you like some of those, lady? Though I wouldn't like to fit them personally. Um, and, and even by the draperies, we get a sense of Xerxes' magnificence, don't we? Then in verse 3, Xerxes holds a great feast. We're told of wine in gold goblets in verse 7, and each guest is told no limit on the alcohol consumed. Nothing is held back for his party. Then a drunken stupor in, on day 7 of his banquet... Xerxes orders Queen Vashti to display her beauty before the guests. And this puts Vashti in a terrible position. If she refuses, she risks the wrath of the king. If she concedes, she potentially risks Xerxes making a fool of himself. So Vashti refuses in verse 12, which apparently under Persian law she had the right to do. However, the king is almighty in a sense and becomes furious and removes the queen. Then in verses 6 to 8, 16 to 18, we read, One of the king's aides, Memucan, worried that Vashti's refusal will cause similar defiance across the empire, has an edict drawn up that men should be the ruler of their households, verse 20, because he fears in verse 18 there will be no end of disrespect and discord. Now, obviously, this is an abuse of power. The Bible does not condone such treatment of Vashti and women as such. It's simply reporting what happened. But we can also say that these empires were equally abusive to both genders. So, for example, thousands of males would have been made eunuchs, and that was probably the case for Daniel and his friends. Uh, 
Just reflecting over chapter one, we can make some important observations and comparisons of the great empire of Xerxes, the world we lived in, and the kingdom of God. And my first observation is this, that just like God's people in Persia, living in a world that defies God is inescapable for us. We can't escape living in the world and its influences, can we? Though we meet here, which is fantastic. Yes, we're blessed to live in a democracy but, and have substantial freedom, but even democracies can be anti-God. In the sense they are based on the power and the values of humankind, which are significantly different to those that honour God and his ways. So at times we can feel rocked, can't we, in a sailboat, in an ocean of ungodly influences. At times the Christian cause will seem hopeless as we are ridiculed and even censored. But we should take heart and not be intimidated by the world for two reasons that come from Esther. Firstly, because God exerts supreme power and control over the nations. That's the story of the Bible. The Lord reigns and works all things under his own counsel, says Paul in Ephesians 1. The great Christian author J.I. Packer, who went to the Lord just last year, said it like this. Man's lawlessness, man's lawlessness does not thwart God's plan for his people's redemption. As we'll see in Esther 2, God is able to use the events in chapter 1 to his own purposes. And he does so in our world too and with you. The second reason we should not be intimidated by the empire of this world is because the empire of this world is really laughable and very brutal. Did you notice how dopey and uh, impulsive King Xerxes is despite all his wisdom and power? So Xerxes, the great supreme ruler, is characterised as a drunken oaf. And what about his advisers? Um, they are portrayed in verse 13 as men who understand the time. Yet they are reactionary dills. Um, so the author of Esther is clearly using satire to characterise the wise and powerful. When I was young, I used to watch the great BBC comedy Dad's Army, which I hope a few of you did. I used to watch it with my father. Uh, and I can't help reflect that what we've read is like a scene from Dad's Army. I mean, you can just imagine Corporal Jones in a tiz shouting, don't panic, don't panic, the women are revolting, don't panic. <laughs> um, so I hope you can see that I used the title for this section, The Great Empire, with a great degree of facetiousness, because leaders like Xerxes are temporary and on a very short leash by the Lord God. There is only one truly enduring empire and kingdom, and that is the kingdom of God. And we believe that God will bring his kingdom to earth in its final fulfilment. So let's jump to chapter 2 under the second heading, The Great Organiser, where in verse 1 we read, Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Now the word later or sometime later at the start of verse 1, is important. It means that some time has expired since the king outed Vashti and there has been some troubling events in Xerxes' life. Uh, many historians think that between chapters 1 and 2, Xerxes went to war with the Greeks and got sadly beaten in the Battle of Thermopylae, if anyone knows their ancient history. But in any case, the king now comes to regret his decision of demoting the queen. 
Indeed, the word remembered in verse 1 has the connotation of recalling something with affection, almost like nostalgia. King Xerxes, for all his power, is now very lonely. By his own doing, by his own stupid decision of ridding himself of Vashti. But once again, King Xerxes, the supreme ruler of the known world, is incapable of solving his own problems. And as will become very important later chapters, once the king gave an edict, such as to banish Vashti, this edict could not be revoked, even by himself. And so his servants have a search over the entire empire for a replacement for Queen Vashti. And all the beautiful young virgins from the provinces are sent to the capital Susa in verse 8. And one of the girls selected is a young Jewish girl by the name of Esther. Her father and mother are deceased and she is being raised by her older cousin Mordecai. He treats her as if she was his own daughter in verses 5 to 7. She had a lovely figure and was beautiful uh, in verse 7. So not surprisingly, she was selected and taken into the king's palace, into the harem. She pleases the king and is promoted to the best place in the harem and is given a series of beauty treatments. And eventually she becomes queen if we move forward to verses 16 to 18. Now here is where the moral ambiguities and tensions really come home in Esther. In doing research for Esther, many commentators roundly condemn Esther and Mordecai for being unfaithful to God. They ask, how could Esther, a Jew, a God person, possibly allow herself to become queen to this pagan narcissist that is King Xerxes? And what about Mordecai? Even his actions seem very odd, for he tells Esther in verse 10 to hide her identity as a Jew. Now, I think these... Actually, one commentator described Esther as an incredibly poor role model to young Christian women. I actually think these commentators completely miss the point. I don't condemn Esther and Mordecai for two reasons. Firstly, the narrator doesn't. And secondly, where we're told the young maidens are gathered in verse 8, it can be argued that the girls were forcibly gathered, i.e. they had no choice in it. But even if I'm wrong and Esther went voluntarily, she's portrayed as a developing character in this book in that her expression of, the, of her faith of the Lord God grows. And so it is with us. I actually have a lot of empathy for Esther and Mordecai because there are times I fail God and many times I still do. But as we grow in our understanding and application of the truths of God we uh, confess more about God, don't we? It's, it's Christian maturity. And I suspect the same is true for Esther. There will be a moral decision point for Esther later in this book, but it's not in chapter 1. So we need to hold our judgments. And yet the combination of the twin themes of chapter 2, of Esther's vulnerability, an orphan, a Jew, in a foreign empire, a, a quite abusive empire, and yet the mighty providential hand of God, I think would provide a story of hope to many Christians in persecuted lands. Imagine you're an impoverished woman of Christian faith in the developing world. You have very little rights. You are actively discriminated against. I think the book of Esther would be a huge encouragement that despite your lowly circumstances, God can still be active in your situation. And it's no coincidence that Vashti, Queen of Persia, is replaced by Esther, Esther. 
because God has a role for Esther, the salvation of her own people, no less, as we will discover in later chapters. And neither is it coincidence that her cousin Mordecai has such a pivotal role in her life. You see, our God is the great organiser of nations, but also the events in your life. Romans 8.28, that great memory verse, that all things work together for good to those that love God. doesn't mean the things we experience in life are necessarily good. Some are downright sad and devastating, aren't they? But that doesn't mean that God can't use them for good in us. Isn't that the story of Joseph, sold into slavery, and yet he rises, eventually rises to be Pharaoh's 2IC? And so that when he eventually confronts his brothers who come to him because they're in drought, he tells them, you meant this for evil, like selling me off into slavery, but God used it for what? Good. And I imagine if you asked Joseph, stripped naked in the slave markets in Egypt, how's life going with you now, Joseph? I doubt he would have said, well, it's going swimmingly. Often it's life, it's only in retrospect that we can see the hand of God, isn't it? And all we can do often is just cry, help me, God. Sometimes we don't know the reason things will happen until we see God in eternity. But our God is not just the great organiser, he is the great influencer as we come to our final heading. So in chapter 2, verse 21, we read this. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthanar and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported this to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found out to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. So Mordecai, Esther's cousin, is sitting at the king's gate. This probably infers he has a judicial role, kind of like a magistrate. He was to hear legal cases and make determinations. So Mordecai, in doing this, discovers a plot uh, by the king's officers Bigthan and Teresh to assassinate the king. The conspirators are apprehended and hanged, and Mordecai's service is recorded. Now, the Persians kept absolutely records of everything. That's why we know so much about their history. And it's no small thing to have your name recorded in the King's Annals. It's like getting an Australia Day award for saving the Prime Minister from some terrorist plot. Now, this record of Mordecai in the Book of Esther is not a random thing. It's not like the author thought, well, I need a bit of padding here before I get on the real interesting stuff, so I know I've heard this interesting story about Mordecai. I'll add that. Uh, No, it's there because the Lord God that Mordecai followed is orchestrating events behind the scenes, as it were, as he did for Esther, to influence events in the world that Esther and Mordecai lived in. And he does the same for us. An important question that follows then is how and what? How does God orchestrate events? What means does he use to do this in my life? How is he influencing my events in my life, in the world? I mean, in my introduction, I painted a fairly bleak view of the world, didn't I? Especially, perhaps, for Christians. And learning about Esther's one thing, but that happened in 486 BC. I mean, what about my day and age, my life? 
How is God working in the here and now? Well, the answer to the questions I posed is not how and what, but who. God has influence in this world and in your life because the one with the most influence in the world, Jesus the King, became as those with little influence, as it were. Paul says it like this, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Wasn't that a key theme of Matthew's Gospel? Jesus a servant, being made in human likeness. Doesn't mean he wasn't still God, but he emptied himself of so much, didn't he? In his ministry on earth and in his death and resurrection, and just like those two criminals who plotted to kill the king, he was eventually hung on a pole like a criminal. And he did this to seek you, to purchase you in his love, to set you free. So that we should never perceive ourselves as helpless and washed in the storms of life. It's interesting that Esther was an orphan because in one sense she wasn't, was she? She had God the Father as her father. And so do we. We should never view ourselves as orphans, no matter what our circumstances. The very last words in Matthew's Gospel are Jesus, and he tells us this. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This means we can do much more than just survive in this world because the gospel gives us hope that we can be influencers for Jesus the King and that we are influenced on by Jesus the King in whatever role you find yourself in. Our influence may not be as dramatic as falling an assassination attempt like Mordecai or becoming queen like Esther, but it's still very important. Jesus, again in Matthew's Gospel, says we are to be salt and light, pointing to Jesus in our words and deeds. Let's pause and think about who are the seeming influences of this world. We might think of the wealthy, powerful politicians, media personalities, intellectuals like the Kardashians. But perhaps those two terms don't go together. But anyway. Let, let's pause and tell you an example of an influencer on me. When Kate and I were first married in the late 80s, suddenly feeling very old when I say it actually, but we lived in Broken Hill, I had a job in Broken Hill, and we belonged to a very loving and very working class church. And I came under the influence of a, an elder, a man named Wilbur, who really mentored me greatly in my Christian life. Now, Wilbur would not be esteemed highly by worldly standards. He worked underground, he was a miner, and I doubt he even had year nine education. But because he was a faithful Christian who loved God, he was able to influence many others like myself. So let's close by teasing out some of the implications of the Lord's influence on us, the world through Jesus Christ. Firstly, if you're not a Christian, are you going to let Jesus influence your life to set you free from sin and death? so that you stop being an enemy of God and you become God's friend. If you are a Christian, then the question's the same. Are you going to let Jesus influence your life? Because it is possible for it to be a Christian and be in rebellion against God, isn't it? I know I do it. But we need to die to self daily, don't we, and trust God to be an influencer to others for Jesus our Lord. And to some of us who are hurting, and I know many of you are, 
Jesus' influence might just mean we give our doubts and hurts to God and trust him with your future. So to some days it may just mean putting one foot in front of the other. But that's okay. That's what faith is all about, trusting God with our future, even though the difficult days may be ahead and all we can do is scream, God, help me. That's okay. Because we are believing, just like in Esther, that he is the hidden hand behind events in your life and the world. We can do this because we have the great influence of heaven and life in our lives, Jesus Christ. We can do this because God is in control. Let's pray. Lord God, we live in a world full of ambiguities and tensions. It is difficult sometimes to see you in our lives and the world. It is difficult when we're suffering, Lord. Help us to daily trust you just to put one foot in front of the other and to trust each day with you. Amen.